0: Luke 9, starting at verse 23, says, then he, meaning Jesus, said to them all, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me will save it. For what does it benefit someone if he gains the whole world and yet loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the son of man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and that of the father and the holy angels. Truly, I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. This is God's word. You can take your seat as you join me for another moment of prayer. Gracious God, we recognize that this life you've blessed us with is only truly life if we live it for you. Without you, it means nothing. And so we want to take heed to what your word calls us to this morning. And be willing to lay our lives down. We want to have a willingness to deny ourselves and to reflect you and what you've done by taking up a cross. that we want to follow you. And so we pray and ask that as we study this passage this morning that we leave this place being more clearly, evidently marked as followers of Jesus. May we be people who are willing to embrace self-denial and surrenderance, sanctification, that all that your work calls us to, we want to embrace it wholeheartedly and rejoice in the fact that to live is Christ. And because of that, to die can be gained. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for this truth. And I pray that as I attempt to, to preach it and, and make it clear to your people that you would use me as a tool of yours, God it's only you who embeds your truth into the hearts of your people. And so I humbly Admit and acknowledge that I need your help this morning, God. Would you be gracious to give me strength and wisdom and grace, clarity in my thoughts, clarity in my speech? Unction, God all that is needed so that your people can leave this place and we' be built up by the truth of your word. I avail myself for your use, Father. And it's for your glory. In the name of your Son, and with dependence upon your Holy Spirit, that I both pray and preach. Amen. You know it's completely counterintuitive that one could gain by losing. Without much explanation, that that statement "gain by losing" sounds backwards, upside down, unconventional. And just like it doesn't work, on the surface, it is a literal oxymoron. But if you think about it, there are many scenarios where we see gains come by losses. When we spend money on a house or a car or a hamburger at Wendy's. (laughs) You've lost a little bit in your bank account, but you've gained something to live in or ride around in or to fill your bellies with. When mothers give birth to children, They've spent an entire pregnancy growing a child in their womb. But when they give birth, they, they gain a child to hold in their arms due to the loss of physical attachment to the child. And this is how investments work, financial investments, right, T? You want to see your money grow? And so what do you do? You you turn it over to a stock or a fund. You you lose it for a small time with hopes that within a few years, you'll see that you gain more than you gave. One of the things that stuck out to me from Mona Jean's memorial service yesterday was when Kate spoke to this idea. She said that with every loss, there's some kind of gain. She was speaking specifically to the reality that in Christ, the loss of earthly life yields the gain of life in heaven with him. But believe it or not, friends, it's not only through death that this takes place. You see, in this morning's passage, Jesus essentially exhorts us to to lose our earthly lives while we still live them so that we might gain the joy of knowing a second life with him, both on earth and in heaven. He exhorts us to, to lose the earthly life that we would create for ourselves so that we might have the better life that we'll find by following him. He exhorts us toward the epitome of gaining by losing. Look at your neighbor and say, gaining by losing. By the way, I've been encouraged by how vocal y'all have been as a congregation these last few weeks. That's just, we can talk to our neighbors, you can talk to me while I preach, just want to give y'all that reminder in case it it is forgotten. Um, When we come to the passage for today, friends, uh, Jesus is addressing a group of his followers about uh, what it looks like to embrace this life of gaining by losing. It's a somewhat intense address that he's giving, but it's honestly a part of an intense conversation that was already in progress. Now, you've heard me say for the last few weeks that... Uh, leading up to chapter nine of Luke's gospel, Jesus' life and ministry has made him a very popular man. We know that from the early parts of Luke's gospel that that he had this miraculous prophetic birth and and he was evidently gifted in his childhood. And then he grew up into a man. And, and about a year and a half before the time of today's passage, he began a public ministry that included healing and and miracles and and, and, and powerful preaching. Well, that ministry drew a lot of attention to him. It kind of became the hot topic of town, and, and people were literally leaving their normal day-to-day lives to devote themselves full-time to following him and learning from him. Well, in last week's passage, we saw that he told the followers that he was closest to that his ministry and his purposes in life wouldn't always be as, as sweet and, and peachy and, and easy to embrace and easy going as it had been perceived up to this point. He was making it clear to them that as the Savior God had sent to rescue humanity from sin— Part of his ministry would be that of healing and, and miracles and deliverances and all of those good, fun, peachy things. But alongside all of that, there would also be suffering and rejection, even to the point of death. In verse 22 that we looked at last week, Jesus pulled aside those followers that he was closest to. And he told them, he said, it is necessary that the son of man suffer many things and be rejected, be killed and be raised the third day. Now, that was the first time that Jesus had explicitly said to anyone that part of his mission included suffering and death. So that was Jesus kind of kind of turning the heat up on the conversation. And when we get to verse 23, we're catching what is part two of this this heated, intense conversation. He's just told them that he's going to die. But then he looks at all of them and he starts to speak to them about what they must do if they're going to be followers of his. Mark's gospel tells us that at this point, it was more than just a close group of followers. In Mark 8, we can read that that Jesus assembled a crowd along with those close group of followers. And what we see in verse 23 is that Jesus looks up and he says to all of them, he says, all of you, if any of you are going to be followers of mine, here's what you must do. And then he goes on to lay out these conditions for following him. And let's keep in mind that, that, that at this point, because of all that Jesus has done, Because of how popular his ministry had made him, there are many people who want to follow him. I can't imagine how big this crowd must have been that he's speaking to them about what it looks like to follow him. But here's the thing I want us to catch. What Jesus says to the crowd, these these conditions that he lays out before them, don't exactly serve him well if what he intends to do is see the crowd continue to grow in number. You know, that's, this is one of the problems that I personally have with American Bible Belt Christianity. You see, we live down here in the South with, with that good old Southern charm. Everything's got to be sweet and nice, like sugar and spice, they say. But somewhere along the way, friends, we've started to feel like it's our job to add Southern charm to the gospel. And so so if we aren't careful, we'll get caught trying to trying to water the gospel down and make it less offensive or less exclusive or less confrontational or, or, or less abrasive in its nature. We may get to the point of trying to tell people that Jesus is a savior, but avoid telling them that they are sinners in need of his salvation. You see, we can get caught in trying to do these things because we want more people to feel like they can come and partake in the gospel truth. And, and this is an admirable desire of ours. Like by all means, we want to see people saved by the gospel and we want to faithfully share the gospel and and, and rejoice as people respond to the gospel with faith. But if we start trying to water the gospel down so that it becomes easy for people to accept, we neither honor God, the gospel itself, nor the people we're sharing it with. It's dishonoring to God because we misrepresent him and the mission that he's called us to. It dishonors the the gospel because there's a high likelihood that if we're making it easy to embrace and making it taste good to people, then, then it's probably a watered down distorted gospel and not as those that we share with because we're not being straight up about what God actually invites them into. And so listen to me say this. Hopefully this will put us at ease about uh, some of the angst we tend to have in the way we go about ministry. We ain't got to defend God, church. <laughs> God doesn't need our protection. Uh, we don't have to de- de- defend and protect God and, and the gospel's reputation. Your life, Christian, was changed by the confrontational truth of the gospel. So it's for our good that the gospel does confront us and offend us and show us the reality of how our flesh longs for sinfulness, and then it calls us to a life of, of sacrificing sinful fulfillment so that we might know true fulfillment in Christ. You see, the gospel, friends, is truth that calls us to lay our lives down as we would have them. We want to lay them down and lay them to the side and then to take up life as God would have it for us. It calls us to a life of of sacrificing what we want to have the better of what God gives. And that's exactly what Jesus communicates to this crowd as he lays out these conditions for following him. He first tells them that if anyone is going to be a follower of his, they must embrace self-denial. He says, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself. Now, this phrase about denying oneself, this is this is a phrase we should probably become pretty familiar with in the Christian life. Uh, the idea of denial is to say no or to willfully neglect something, right? Well, Jesus says here that we should deny and say no to and willfully neglect ourselves. Now, this is completely kind cultural. And if, we're, if we don't read this passage correctly, it can even sound completely counter Christian. Like culture says we should devote all of our energy, all of our efforts, all of our attention to, to caring for ourselves and seeing that every desired comfort and convenience is met. But is, is Jesus saying that we we shouldn't? take care of ourselves? I guess, is Jesus saying that, that self-care should be completely thrown out to the extent that we don't even tend to the things that are good for us? I understand how some people might ask that question, but that's not what Jesus is telling us. What Jesus is saying is that we should embrace selflessness, which will naturally require self-denial. Like all of us in the room, like if we're honest with ourselves, we know that we don't have to work to, to want what we want to want to serve ourselves. Like it is a default of the human heart for us to be self-serving. Some of us more than others, some of us more overtly than others, some of us in more hidden ways than others, but all of us, no matter how we do it, because of our sinful nature, are often seeking ways to be self-serving. So whether it be intentional or not, human beings are are masters at convincing ourselves that the world revolves around these lives that we as individuals are living. But the self-denial that Jesus is talking about It's a kind of acceptance that the world doesn't revolve around us, but it instead revolves around God and the work that he is doing in the world. You see, friends, a core part of the Christian faith is is repeatedly saying no to the self-serving parts of ourselves in order to say yes to the God serving parts of ourselves. self-centeredness is is a sinful mentality that started the moment Adam and Eve decided that the Garden of Eden should revolve around them and their desires. But selflessness is a godly mentality that Christ came to restore as the way for God's people. And I mean, who better better to come and, and call people to this restored mentality, right? Like Christ Jesus, as we know it, is depicted in Philippians 2 as the epitome of self-denial. Like He lived in heaven in a state of complete and total divinity. But what does Philippians 2 say he did? It says that while he first existed in the form of God, he did not consider equality with God as something to be held on to. But instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. So we've got a savior who denied himself to the point of death for those who he was coming to save. And here he calls us to reflect him by, by willfully denying ourselves for the sake of showing that we're saved. Like Jesus says, if you're going to walk this path behind me and call yourself a follower of mine, you need to know that it is a path of, of selflessness and self denial that I am paving. And here's the thing, beloved, we have every reason in the world to deny ourselves. Unlike Jesus, we've got every reason for that. Like Jesus existed in the form of godness with with glory and divinity and perfection. There ain't nothing about that that needs to be denied. We exist in a form of humanity with sin and imperfection and, and sinful, imperfect desires that come as a byproduct of this human existence. Much of that needs to be denied. And so when Jesus calls us to a life of self-denial, he calls us to a life that is actually better for us than the life we'd have if we pursued every one of our selfish desires. You see, this selfish denial, friends, will will keep us from sin and it will keep us prioritizing the will of God. And that brings us to the next condition for following Jesus. Jesus says, not only must my followers take up self-denial, but my people will also be characterized by surrenderance." He says, if you're following me, then you're following me on a path of surrenderance to the Father's will. I don't know about y'all. Um, maybe everybody in the room is, is holier than I am. Um, but this, this, this thing of surrenderance, surrenderance, that's, for me, that's, that's, that's one of the more difficult calls of the Christian life. Like not only do we want to pursue our own comforts and, and conveniences and, and serve ourselves, but we also, if we're honest with ourselves, we want to be in control of ourselves. But Jesus says, that won't be my people. He says, my people are going to be cross carriers. He says, my people are, they're going to do what I've done and take up a cross. Now, at this point, Jesus hasn't yet carried a cross. Now, he knew that, that he was going to carry a cross, but at the point of our passage, the statement about a cross would have sounded bizarre and, and extreme and, and, and morbid and misplaced. Like this crowd probably had no clue what Jesus was talking about. Across to them, I told you this a few weeks ago, across to them had a connotation that would have made them shudder at the very utterance of a statement like this. Like we know that, that w- w- what Jesus means by this because we read this and look backwards at what he did on the cross. But for those who were standing there, friends, this was crazy talk. Like this is, this is madness that Jesus is doing here. The cross, as they knew it, was the, the tool that was used in modern-day crucifixions. And like I told you last week, the word cross and crucifixion were words that made some people feel dirty just by having it come out of their mouths. Uh, Cicero was was a renowned Roman statesman and philosopher. Uh, He lived shortly before the time of Jesus, and he was, was quoted saying this. He said that crucifixion is a most cruel and disgusting punishment, and the very mention of the cross should be far removed not only from one's body, but from his mind, his eyes, and his ears. He thought that the word cross should never be uttered in a a casual, polite conversation. And yet here Jesus is preaching to this crowd of people that want to devote their lives to following him. And he says, if you're going to follow me, you got to take up a cross. Now, why would Jesus speak in this way? We know that he took up a cross and, and he was killed by crucifixion. That's how he saved and atoned for the sins of man. But why is he saying to his followers that they've got to carry crosses? Some people take this to say that the Christian life is supposed to be a life of of pursuing martyrdom and death. They say that we should we should search for ways to literally die to prove ourselves faithful as Christians. Others take this to mean that Christianity is all about suffering. Jesus suffered on the cross. The cross was a sign of suffering. So they say we should, should live a life of, of severe asceticism, like, like complete and total rejection of any joys, any happiness, any privileges. Like they say we should have none of those things and, and we should neglect it only to suffer. All we should see is suffering in this life in order to prove ourselves as faithful Christians. Well, I think that those are both inaccurate and unhelpful interpretations of this passage. The Christian life might call you to die for the gospel. It will sometimes call for you to suffer for the gospel. And and, and hear me, both of those scenarios will be an honor. But those aren't things that we should purposely go seek and look for as God's people. You see, when Jesus says that his followers are to take up a cross, he's calling them to a life of ultimate surrenderance to the will of God. Uh, That's exactly what the cross was for him, right? It was a sign of ultimate surrenderance. This is seen in the prayer that we see Him pray in, in the Garden of Gethsemane, right before he's arrested for his crucifixion. Father, not my will, but your will be done. And they were told in, in John nineteen thirty that as he hung on the cross, the very last thing he did to fulfill the objective of dying for our sake was bow his head and give up or hand over, surrender his spirit. So the cross for Jesus, friends, was all about submitting and surrendering to the will of God. And he says that if you're going to follow me, if you're going to be a follower of mine, you too must lay down your will and lay down your plans and lay down your expectations and follow me into a life of being wholeheartedly, fully submitted to the wills and plans and expectations of God. He says that we're going to be a surrendered people. We're going to surrender to the will of God because His will is always best anyways. And did y'all notice what else he was sure to say about this? If anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself. And take up his cross daily. (laughs) You know, it's almost as if Jesus created us and and knows the disposition of the human heart. (laughs) Like it's almost as if He knows that that surrenderance, like self denial, wouldn't be that won't be the human default. And so He says, not only do you need to do this, but you need to resolve daily to do it. Find a cross to take up every day. He says. Let this be a daily renewal in your life. Know God's will and then put his before your own. Live in perpetual surrenderance to the will of God the Father. If you're going to follow me, take up your cross daily, Jesus says. And friends, just like he's the perfect model of what it means to deny oneself, he's also the perfect model of what it looks like to to fully submit to God's will and carry a cross for the sake of fulfilling God's will. The Bible tells us that not only did he carry the cross and die for the death that we should have died, but according to Hebrews 12, 2, He did it for the joy that lay before him. (laughs) Friends, Jesus carried a cross to his death with joy. (laughs) He submitted to the father's will and died to make us the father's children. He submitted to the father's will and gave up his life in order to give us a second life. Friends, we were the joy that lay before him. It was for us that he endured the cross. It was for us that he, he surrendered his life. It was for us that he died for us. It was for us that he breathed his last. And it's also for us that he says we too must carry a cross. You see, God's will is always better than our will. And so like self-denial church, just like it's a condition that works in our favor, we got to know that surrenderance is also a condition that works in our favor. Uh, we don't know what's best for us. God does. And so the best thing for us is to submit to the one who knows what's best for us. This is why Jesus says that in this life of being a follower of his, we must surrender and take up a cross to carry on a daily basis. And then he says, you must also follow me. There's not a lot to unpack here. When Jesus says that those who want to follow him must actually follow him. He's saying that they actually need to follow him. They need to follow and imitate his ways. This means that life for his followers will be a life of sanctification. You see, he lived a perfect life in our place. He endured temptation and suffering, yet he knew no sin. So the way he leads is a way of complete purity and holiness. And though he knows that we won't be perfect in following him along this way, he says that his followers must be decided and resolute that they're going to follow him along the path, even if they stumble along the way. He says, follow me if you're going to follow me. And here's the thing, friends. You've probably been sitting in this sermon thinking of of different acts of moralism and and good deeds to do as we thought about self-denial and and carrying a cross. But but hear me say this. We can't do any of the good moralistic things that we've thought of in our minds if we don't follow Jesus. You see, forging our own path of of good behavior and moralism, that isn't going to work. It's never worked. It's never worked for anybody who's tried to be or do good outside of Jesus because Jesus is the origin and source of all goodness. It's like John 15, 5 tells us he is the vine. We're the branches. If we remain in him, we'll produce good fruit, but we can't do nothing without him. So we got to look to him. We got to lock our eyes on him. We got to walk behind Jesus. Friends, we need to admire Jesus. We need to have affection for Jesus. We need to, to love Jesus. We need to follow Jesus on the path of righteousness. And then our lives will bear good fruit. You know, it's also worth noting here that that the conditions, the, the, the tone of these conditions for following Jesus all come together to form this picture of a, a kind of proactive, intentional, deliberate action. Uh, this doesn't carry a tone of reaction. I mean, we even see it continue in the next verse. Right, Whoever wants to save his life will lose it. The verses don't say be denied, be given a cross, be at a loss. No, friends, these verses say deny Take up. Lose. These are all words that put the ball in our court. It's as if the words are saying to us that, that if we're actually following Jesus and we know the ways he lived, we need to be deliberate about doing some of the things he did. And so we need to be, to be examining ourselves and, and trying to find selfish desires so we can purposely deny them. And we need to be seeking out ways to, to obey these conditions on purpose. Like it's on us to, to wake up every day and purposely ask ourselves the question. What plans do I have for this day that the Lord has given? And am I holding those plans loosely enough to be fully submitted to the will of God? Like, am I ready to to purposely take up my cross on this day? We need to regularly study the word of God and, and know the commands of God so that we can live by them and actually follow Jesus like we say we do, not by mistake, but habitually on purpose. And now you may be thinking to yourself, okay, I'm hearing you look to Jesus, do as Jesus did, but... But practically speaking, like, how do I do that? What actions do I need to teach? Like, like, like what what does it practically look like to deny myself, take up my cross, and follow Jesus? Those are great questions. And there is an innumerable, innumerable, that's a word, innumerable, there it is broken, innumerable amount of answers. Some basic ones to start could be things like fasting or tithing or giving gifts to other people, or prioritizing listening to others instead of making yourself heard in a conversation, or serving faithfully on one of the ministry teams at your church, randomly buying someone a gift or writing someone an encouraging note. like It's it's very rare that that these kinds of actions are the desires we have when we're being led by our flesh. But when we start to give up our time and our talent and our treasure, like using those three things for service outside of ourselves, those are some of the more practical ways that we see self-denial and surrenderance and sanctification taking place in our lives. That's us purposely following the way of Jesus, putting God's will above our own and contributing to good things that don't center on ourselves. And when you do this, church, you're probably going to feel like you're at a loss. Your flesh is going to want to tell you that you're at a loss. You could have spent that money on yourself. No, no, no. There ain't, there ain't nothing wrong with, with, with these plans that you've made. Like You need to force these plans to happen. It's your life. This, this, this thing over here might be the more holy thing, but this decision would be more fun. So, so don't waste your life. Live it up. YOLO. Your flesh is going to want to feed you these lies. But hear me on this. What feels like a loss in the moment Jesus says it's actually gain. Listen to the words of our Savior from verse 24. Whoever wants to save his life. So whoever tries to be self-serving and and self-preserving in their actions will lose it. But whoever loses his life, whoever denies himself, whoever takes up his cross, whoever follows Jesus, they will save it. Friends, Jesus says that there is gain from losing your life. And do you know what the gain is? Is everlasting fulfillment. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life because of me will save it. And when Jesus says that we lose our life because of him, uh, he's verbatim in making it clear for us that he will be the cause of our need to embrace all the conditions we've talked about so far. But he also makes it clear that it results in the end of our lives being saved. So the world wants to, to offer us many things that may make this life better, but, but, but we can't have the life that the world offers along with the life that Jesus offers. So Jesus essentially says that, that, that I'm, I, I, he, he kind of pits himself against the way that he's leading against the ways of the world. You see it in verse 25, it says, for what does it benefit someone if he gains the whole world and yet loses or forfeits himself? Uh, in Matthew and Mark's gospel, they use a different word for, um, in the place of himself. It's the word that essentially means the same thing as soul. So, Jesus is saying to these people that you can have me and, and a healthy soul and eternity in heaven with me and my Father, or you can have the world and the world's ways. I'm not sure if anybody in the room is wondering this morning, but I came to tell you today your soul and life and eternity with Jesus is so much better than what the world can offer you. It's worth so much more, beloved. And we actually see the reason for this word start to show up in verse 26. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the son of man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and out of the father and the holy angels. So Jesus tells of what would be the eternal kind of ruling for those who live with shame of him in this life. And this is an easy trap to fall into. When Jesus says him and his words, he's referring to his teaching about what his kingdom is like and how those who are part of it should live. And listen, the choice of living a godly life will present you with many opportunities to be ashamed. Like, the world is on a trajectory that doesn't align with the trajectory of Jesus and his words. Like, the world is, is growing in this direction that is, is contrasting the ways of God. And that presents us as God's people with endless opportunities to be ashamed of Jesus and his ways. But hear me say this. Being shamed by the world now is better than having Jesus be ashamed of us when he returns. You see, it's best that we forsake the approval of the world so that we can have the approval of Christ Jesus. He says he will be ashamed of those who are ashamed of him. But that leaves only one implication for those of us who, who live with a, a kind of bold fidelity to him and his ways. It's that we will get to be with him in glory. It's that he'll take pride in us and that he'll invite us into his glory. And what a glorious day that'll be, friends. Uh, Jesus actually kind of hints about the glory of that day with this title he used to refer to himself. He uses the title Son of Man. In reference to himself here, and I think he did that on purpose. I told y'all this before, but uh, the title "Son of Man" has its roots all the way back in Daniel chapter seven. In Daniel seven thirteen, Daniel has this this vision of the end times, and he records that vision by writing that he sees one coming like a Son of Man, and then that Son of Man is given dominion, glory, and a kingdom. And so, God's people adopted that that title from this vision and. The Son of Man title is one that they'd use to refer specifically to the glorious Savior who would come and establish his rule in the end times. In Matthew 16, 27, it's written that the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father. In Matthew twenty four thirty, Matthew tells us again, the Son of Man is coming back with power and great glory, he says. In Acts seven fifty six, 56, when Stephen is killed for standing strong in the gospel, it was said that the heavens open and peering down with, with eyes of, of pleasure and approval, it says the Son of Man was standing at the right hand of God. In Revelation chapter 1, another vision of the end times. In verse 7, the Son of Man comes on the clouds and it says, every eye will see him. In verse 13 of Revelation 1, the son of man is dressed in a robe with a golden sash wrapped around his chest. That's as glorious as glorious gets. And then later in in chapter 14 of Revelation, the son of man is said to be seated on a cloud with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. In his glorious state, he's prepared to to usher those who are his into glory with him. And so hear me, when Jesus says here, that the Son of Man will reciprocate shame when he returns. The title needs to be heeded. You see, they knew what this title meant, so this statement is is Jesus kind of sticking his chest out, and he wears his title, Son of Man, with pride. He says, when I come back, friends, you better believe that it's going to be some show enough glory. And so don't be ashamed, and I won't be ashamed, Jesus says. He's coming back in glory, friends. And when he does, he'll look at us either with, with shame, because we've been ashamed of him, or pride because we followed him and his ways. He'll look at at us with pride if we followed him in the way of the cross. I said earlier that this, this word cross had an extremely negative and disturbing connotation to those of Jesus' day. But now we see crosses everywhere. We wear crosses in our jewelry. People get crosses tattooed on themselves. We display crosses in our homes, in our churches, Crosses are everywhere. Crosses now have this kind of positive connotation. And do you know why this is church? It's because Jesus, through what he's done, allows us to look back at the cross. And we understand it to be one of the key tools, one of the key figures, one of the key symbols that Jesus himself embraced to make it possible for us to enter into his kingdom. So through his Crucifixion and death on a cross, he, he captured that word and he's represented it so that it now has connotations for the triumph of God's kingdom. You see, the, the, the cross now represents hope. And it represents hope that we'll see this glorious kingdom someday. The reason I bring this up in this final verse of our passage, right when Jesus tells this group that he's addressing that, that, that some of them are, are, who are standing there won't die until they see the kingdom of God, the reason I bring this up Is because there are a ton of different thoughts about what Jesus means in this verse. And in Matthew and Mark's gospel, Matthew says the son of man is coming in his kingdom. Mark phrases it as the the kingdom of God coming in power. So so people aren't quite sure what Jesus means when he refers to this coming kingdom and how some are going to see it. Uh, Something he's talking about his resurrection from the death on the cross. Others would say that he's talking about when he sends the Holy Spirit and and the church is is born at Pentecost. Another group would say that he's talking about the healings and miracles that continue to happen through the apostles. The group that I agree with uh, says that he's talking about what happens in the very next passage. Uh, It's something we'll look at next week called the transfiguration. I don't have time in this sermon to get into the weeds of what Jesus is talking about. But the reason I mentioned how he represents the cross is is because when we get to this verse where we see that he says this about the kingdom of God, the reason I bring this up about the cross is because I I simply want to point this out. I want to point out that with the cross and his resurrection and the miracles and the fact that there's a church 2,000 years later and the fact that you yourself are saved and the fact that we have one another to love and be loved by and the fact that we're being sanctified, all of these things are signs and symbols and examples and even manifestations of the glory and forthcoming glorious kingdom of God. And these signs, friends, are to be our proof that Jesus and his glory is worthy of us embracing the conditions for following him. And it's also to be our proof that he actually has gained to give us when we lose our lives for him. Let's be a people who gain by losing, church. Jesus has gained to give. Let's gain by losing. Let's pray. This makes complete sense in you, Christ, that gain is loss or loss is gain. It makes complete sense. We see that you have regained your people through the loss of your life on the cross. So it makes sense to us that we as your people can gain the better, renewed, redeemed life that you have for us by losing this one that we create for ourselves. So we pray that you give us the grace and wisdom in our day to day lives to know what it looks like to live this out, to joyfully be a people who lose ourselves, deny ourselves, take up a cross and follow you for the sake of gaining everlasting, eternal fulfillment with you. We long for that, Lord. We thank you that you've made it clear to us how we can come about it. So we pray this in your matchless name. Amen.